Our scripture lesson comes from Luke 5, just as Jeff mentioned. But I tell you, what an anthem. What an anthem. Please don't do that to me before I preach. I'm a mess. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. James Muhlenberg was the Davenport professor of Hebrew exegesis and cognate languages. I do not know what that means at Union Theological Seminary from 1945 to 63. He was uh, something of an angular man with thinning white hair, looked like Moses himself. In his introduction to the Old Testament, the largest lecture hall in Union was packed. Students brought friends, friends brought friends, and they stood in the back when the chairs were filled. This man's body would be stiff and his arms scarecrowed out with his knees bent, and he would become Adam, going, you, you are an elephant, and you, you're a butterfly. And you, an ostrich, he would become Eve hiding in her shame in the garden. He would become David sobbing over the death of Jonathan and Saul. He would lift his eyes 
and spread wide his arms and declare that there should be light. And the students, he swore, had light. That there was this magic of his ability to make the scripture live and to flood the room and the faces that experienced him. But what made him so wonderfully real is that he would go to the deep. Every morning he would say, when you wake up, before you affirm your faith in the majesty of a living God, before you say, I believe for another day, read the news with its record of the latest crimes and tragedies, and then see if you can honestly say it again. This man was real. And he was believable mostly because he didn't or couldn't or wouldn't resolve or evade the tensions of living our faith in this world. It said that he so lived out that tension that he was almost torn in two at times. His faith was not a seamless, perfect garment, but a ragged one with the seams showing and the tears showing, a garment that he clutched about him like a man in a storm. Thanks be to God for people like that. Because God needs ordinary, real, believable people that will follow. In our scripture lesson this morning, huge crowds are coming to see Jesus, eager, waiting to hear him. And he's so overcrowded by them that he gets in Simon's boat and goes out with him to teach for a while. People are watching. They're really watching. It's important to remember that Jesus is getting into the boat and asking professional fishermen to put their nets out once again. Don't you find it a little odd that a carpenter is giving fishing instructions? Simon objects, saying that we've been at this thing all night. We are washing our nets and putting them away to demonstrate that. He says, but okay. Okay, if you say so, I will. Not only does he catch fish, he has to call the wider community in to participate in the catch. And his reaction, while astonished, is one of absolute shame. Falling on his face at the knees of Jesus, he is extraordinarily moved by the light that comes on. And because he sees himself now in that light, he must push Jesus away. He comes face to face with his own brokenness, the sin in his world, and knows his own worthiness. In other words, 
He just read the paper. Newsflash, my friends, there's never been a person who encountered God that felt good enough. There's a not good enough chip that is in our brains and it drives much of what we do and don't do in our lives. It's the thing that makes us judge ourselves and others so harshly. Because if I'm not good enough, you can't be either. It's the emptiness in our exhaustion which leads us to self-medication or to tolerate another's abuse. And for some, to prove their unworthiness through self-destruction. If we could just understand this issue about being about ourselves and that it's ours and not God's issue with us, we would be so much healthier. But I'm here to tell you no generation has ever escaped this struggle. Henry Nouwen has a book of prayers called A Cry for Mercy, and in it he has a prayer related to Simon Peter. He says, Dear Lord, your disciple Peter wanted to know who would betray you at the Last Supper. You pointed to Judas, but a little later also to Peter. Judas betrayed, Peter denied. Judas hung himself. Peter became the apostle whom you made the first among equals. Lord, give me faith. Faith in your endless mercy, your boundless forgiveness, your unfathomable goodness. Let me not be tempted to think that my sins are too great to be forgiven, too abominable to be touched by your mercy, too impossible to be transformed for your use. My friends, this big fish story in Jesus, is Jesus' way of beginning the conversation not only with Simon's brokenness, but also with our not-enoughness. Somewhere, we've got to hear that our response, our pushing of Jesus away, our unworthiness, our perceived sinfulness has never, ever stopped Jesus from seeking us out. Make no mistake, it's because Jesus catches ordinary, real, struggling people to live out his blessing and his love. It's a very common biblical motif for us not to feel very worthy in the presence of the divine. Moses felt like he couldn't speak for God and so Aaron was called into action. Isaiah declares as a prophet being called, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then Jeremiah spouts, Call me, I'm just a boy. 
Simon, the one upon whom God declares he will build his church, understand, is never a perfect human being. In fact, he is impetuous, he's bullheaded, always putting his foot in his mouth, denying knowing Jesus at the last, just moments after the Last Supper. The Gospel of Mark betrays him as absolutely inept. Paul finds him shallow and unconvincing. John respects him. But has Peter arrive at the empty tomb after the beloved and we witness it? He's so human, so ordinary, which makes him the perfect guy to show us Jesus means what he says. So what does Jesus do when Simon pushes him away? He says, don't be afraid or don't continue to be afraid. Jesus has always been aware and undeterred by our opposition or our sinfulness. There's a wonderful little poem that catches this text written by Joseph Ross that goes like this. Here are working men with hands that are calloused, not consecrated. They are used to the burn of ropes, sweat and smells of fish, fraying nets and the squinting worry of work. This time, they are the ones caught though they try to close their eyes like fish, they are lidless and they are seen. Somehow, they are known by this stranger who smells like blood on wood. Jesus catches them, my friends, in real places. Real people, real places that become holy, not because of their location, but because that's where God's activity is. Not always in the church or temple or synagogue, not by holy people, priests or Pharisees. It's by fisher people who happen to know themselves as a mess. My friends, it's easier, it's easier to think we can be holy in holy places. Tish Harrison Warren has a blog in which she remembers that during college, she wanted to live a radical life for Jesus, and she did. She set off for Africa. Tish was unsure how to be faithful on her return in what was now an ordinary life. In her blog, she states, now I'm 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in war-torn Africa. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling 
than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on the average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. Tish goes on to reflect on how in college they have been told, as all college students are, that you can conquer and change the world. We were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person living an average life in a beautiful, sacred way. She found a sign in a prominent new monasticism community house on a wall that reads, everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> My real life is really rich in dirty dishes and diapers, short on revolutions. But I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. I'm starting to learn that whether in Mongolia or Tennessee, the kind of giving my life away that counts starts with how I get up on a gray Tuesday. It won't sell books. It won't be remembered. But it is what makes a life. And who knows? Maybe at the end of day, God can use that stuff too. Ordinary people. Translating it into ordinary life, hearing the invitation of God to recognize that we are invited to follow Jesus because it's Jesus that matters and it's deep water in which we're invited to swim. Simon objects to Jesus' command to go out into the water, but then does as he is asked, literally because Jesus invites him to catch alive people. Classically, it translates to restore and strengthen, to revive, or the better translation might be by following you will be restoring people to life and to strength. Following Jesus is the process. The how is in our everyday lives. The who is those and any that we would counter. The call of the first disciples marks the beginning of a movement of real people with ordinary jobs who take their ordinary lives and commit to following a Jesus in acts of service that go deeper into the reality of life. 
Please understand that church did not come together to exist as a group of people who wanted to start an organization, no matter how wonderful. The Gospels, we learn, teach us that Jesus from the beginning is the one who sets the agenda, who is with us in ordinary places, creating a community of disciples that are invited wherever they are to speak of God's love, to heal, and to understand God's suffering, Jesus' death and resurrection, so that ordinary, wonderful moments, alive ways, are to be caught in people and their lives, restoring and reviving them. Do not we all long to know a loving, forgiving, not letting go, extraordinary love of God who adores us in spite of ourselves. That is life-giving news. So where are we going to do it? Natalie Hampton, when she was snubbed in her 11th grade class at the lunch table, decided to create an app. Using it, kids agreed to lunchtime ambassadors. They would post on this little app where there were seats where kids could come and find a welcome place to sit. It started in 2016 and within days spread internationally, sit with me. When Johnny Jennings, Jennings excuse me, visited the Georgia Baptist Children's Home, he felt it, it was his life mission to help children. When he went there, he was only 18, thought, I can't adopt a child at this time in my life. So he decided to collect scrap paper and aluminum turn it in for the cash, and that's how he would support this children's home. Today, Jennings is 86 years old and has donated through paper and aluminum $400,000 over the course of his lifetime. Los Angeles resident Mohammed Bazik, who is 62 years old, encompasses what it means to go deep. He has taken into his home terminally ill children who are in the Los Angeles foster care system. Done it for the past 20 years. Initially with his wife Dawn, he is now alone since her death in 14. They cared for 40 children throughout the past two decades, and he is currently taking care of a six-year-old who is blind, deaf, and paralyzed. He says that although he knows she cannot see or hear him, he always holds her. So she knows she's not alone. So I ask you, every morning, when you wake up, before you reaffirm your faith in the majesty of a loving God, before you say, I believe for another day, read the news with its record of latest crimes and tragedies of humankind 
and see if you can honestly say it again. Will we be real and believable? Mostly because we don't or can't or won't resolve or evade the tensions of our faith. Because we will live those tensions out, torn in two by them at times. Let it be said of us, they're a mess. Their faith was not a seamless, perfect garment, but a ragged garment with the seams and the tears showing, a garment that they clutched about themselves like a people in the storm. Real. Not sure we are enough, but willing when asked to go deep so that we, through Christ, can revive people for the love of God. Isn't it time? Isn't it time to follow Jesus? Amen.